You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Byron Williams, and we're back with The Small Print. And today I've got with me Yihan Fari, who has just written a book called Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. And as always, Yihan, would you like to introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced? Uh, hi, Bronwyn. Um, well, uh, I think the way I'd like to be introduced is um, to, to keep it short and say I'm Yohan Furi. I'm a professor of economics at Stellenbosch University, and um, I've written this book. So I'm an author uh, of Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom. Um, and uh, at Stellenbosch, I teach economic history to uh, undergrad and, and graduate students. Uh, and, and this is the culmination, basically, of, of 10 years of teaching. Fantastic. So would you like to start by telling us a bit about the book that you've put together and what, what you were hoping to get across when you when you wrote it? Yeah, I, I think there are two main reasons for why, why I did this book. The first is, I guess, quite pragmatic. And that is that, you know, it was hard lockdown last year. And, and uh, my classes, uh, who used to be, of course, in person, which used to be in person, suddenly had to change. And uh, I just felt like the online environment wasn't really conducive to, to discussions. And so I told the students that I put the lectures in writing and then we can discuss once a week. Um, and so I uh, started writing and at the end of every week we would start discuss about three or four of these lectures. Um, and about halfway at the end of hard lockdown, I kind of realized that, you know, it's not only uh, uh, these 80 students that need to see or that might find this kind of these lectures interesting, it, it might be a bigger audience. And so then then I started approaching publishers and I actually approached three publishers and, and only one responded. Um, so um, and that's that's where it was published. Um, so so I guess that's kind of the, the reason why the book emerged in, in 2020. Um, but the more substantive reason, I think, is that uh, I've been teaching this course for for a decade. And I've increasingly found that the students are uh, quite pessimistic about South Africa and, and about kind of the world in general. And, and I just thought, you know, taking a longer term perspective, uh, economic history tells us that actually we can be quite optimistic about uh, where we are in history and, and, you know, how far we've come. Um, and that that's a message that needs to, you know, needs to be uh, broadcast, I guess, uh, more widely than, than, you know, the few books that, that I've alluded to that so far. Um, and not only so much about why we can be so optimistic, but also what were the reasons that allowed, you know, this tremendous human flourishing. Um, and, and that's really what I, what I think economic history can, can help convey. Yeah, let's just take a step back for people that don't are not familiar with your field. What is economic history? What do you look at? What is your domain? And how does it differ from economics and history on either side? Yeah, I guess economic historians, um, uh, we, we study economic history for two reasons. Um, the one is that we want to understand uh, where we've come from. Um, so, you know, a classic example is that it's difficult to think of understanding South African poverty or unemployment or inequality today. If you're a Martian coming in and looking at South Africa without understanding anything about history, I think it would be really difficult to come up with sensible policies to address this. So understanding South Africa's history is, or economic history, then the kind of policies that were put in place in the past to get us to the situation that we're currently in um, is really useful for addressing these kinds of, of dilemmas and challenges that we face. Uh, but there's another reason, I think, and that is um, that history is often analogous to the present and that we can learn from mistakes, from past mistakes uh, or from successes, right? It's not only that we've made mistakes in the past, we've done a lot of things actually quite well. And that's partly what the book wants to focus on um, and, and um, repeat perhaps those successes and obviously not repeat the mistakes that we've made. Um, so. Uh, economic history is a, is a broad church. Uh, it incorporates methods from, from economics. Um, uh, and that's certainly uh, something that's more recently uh, made a lot of progress. Uh, but of course, we, we use history um, to study our theories about the world. The, the past is basically our laboratory as social scientists. And so um, it's incredibly valuable, I think, to understand the kind of context of not only today's economies and society today, which is, you know, we live in this incredibly complex world, but the, 
the past really helps us understand also that that these complexities matter and, and in what way they matter. And so the kind of dry economic theory, the models that we build, which are which are useful and sensible and helps us clarify our thoughts, but the but the past shows that they're not always applicable in all settings and and, and that context really matters. Yeah, absolutely. So I just love what you were saying earlier, and I've definitely was one of the reasons why we were interested to speak to you is have that whole perspective that things are a lot better than we think that they are in general. And that if we do take an objective look at the general history of humanity and even South Africa in the specific, that it's much better to be born today than it was at pretty much any other point in history. But of course, we all know, as soon as we start looking at numbers and data, any sort of chart, that past performance is no guarantee of, of, of future returns. And there's absolutely no guarantees that the human trajectory will continue on an upward slope. Of course, that's what we hope and what we want, but there, there really are no guarantees. And that, I suppose, is always the sort of question with anything to do with economics, whether it's this more classical economics or economic history, is we have to try and separate the objective from the normative and what, what is with what should be. So let's start unpacking this conversation, talking about what is. What are some of those underlying trends that are in place or those policies that have defined where we are right now? Because, of course, we have to get a good handle on where the world is before we can start moving into the next lot of questions, which I'll get into, which is more to do with more prescriptive ideas rather than descriptive ones, saying what should happen next? What can we learn from the past to make things better? Before we do that, let's take a few minutes to sort of explain what we have right now is a highly unequal society where people are rightly or wrongly very dissatisfied with the way the world is. And you have admitted that. You do, you do know that young people feel like they are very hard done by, whether or not this is true objectively or not compared to past generations. But there is a huge sense of disrest and disrest and distrust and dissatisfaction with what's going on in the world right now. And what are some of the reasons for that? What has gone wrong up until this point that we can start looking at how we can start to unpack that and make things a bit better going forward? Yeah, I think um, you're certainly right that students feel this way. And, and uh, I mean, it's not only students, it's I think, you know, uh, if you ask you know, the average person in society, they would certainly agree that that things, uh, the outlook isn't that bright. Um, and it's not only a South Africa or uniquely South African thing, I think it's, you know, it's a global phenomenon. Um, but I think, you know, there to kind of put your, you know, the positive statements uh, in terms of uh, what actually happened. Certainly we live in a time when the world is a much better place. And it's not only in terms of incomes, of course, incomes is a one way of, you know, the economists use, uh, you know, measure that we use to to assess whether people are better off than they were in the past, and and according to incomes, you know, uh, today we are 18 times more affluent than we were, or have, have higher living standards than than we were, uh, you know, 200 years ago, two centuries ago. Um, so that's just one measure, but but almost all other kinds of measures that one can think of, uh, life expectancy, um, you know, how many children die before for the age of five all of these kinds of measures have improved uh, substantially over the last two centuries so um so so just that fact i think is is important and of course i'm not the first to say that right there are others you know uh johan norberg uh hans rosling uh, they've all pointed this out so that's that's not a surprising fact although i still think a few of us actually kind of um are sensitized to that fact and um, so that's partly what the, the book is about um, uh, but of course, we don't stop. We still don't feel that way. And and so the question is, why don't we feel that way? Um, and and there are various ways of of looking at this. There is the kind of psychological literature which suggests that people have this kind of negativity bias. So you know, evolutionary, we've developed to be sensitive to negative news more so than to positive news. And so we kind of you know anything that's negative that 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 appears to threaten uh, our survival, we we're really kind of scared of that, I guess. And so um, we latch onto that and we kind of ignore the positive news that, that, that might be you know, much, much bigger and much more, uh, uh, have more, much greater effects on our lives. Uh, and yet we focus kind of on the, on the negative. And of course, newspapers, you know, the media feeds into that. Uh, you know, they have to sell newspapers and it makes sense that they tend to focus on, on the accidents or, or the kind of the bad news that is reported yesterday instead of the you know, incredible 
but slow moving long run news of improvements in living standards in the developing world um, to the extent that you could write basically a newspaper headline for the last three decades that said, and it would be accurate, that 100,000 people escaped poverty yesterday. Right? So no newspaper reports on that simply because that's uninteresting if you do it for every day for, you know, for 30 years. And yet it's true. Um, and so I think that's really partly the, the, uh, the issue is that we, we tend to focus on the negative, both and what we what we given from the media, but also in, in just in, in our kind of psychological traits. And the third thing I want to say there is that I also think um, it's linked to uh, the kind of education curricula that's that's um, that's being taught to students. Uh, and certainly, I see big differences between my students in the humanities and my students in the commerce faculty, and how they view um, you know, uh, their perceptions of the world. Uh, and I think that's partly due to how they are taught and what they are taught um, uh, and what they kind of uh, get to read in, in the various curricula. Um, and that's partly also this book's attempt is to kind of uh, to bridge those gaps and to say, you know, how do we, we use kind of economic history as a way to, you know, combine the sciences, the social sciences with the humanities and, and try and tell a story that is, that reflects actually what we know of the past and the kind of a new literature that has emerged over the last two decades. That that um, that tries to help us understand how we've moved to uh, where we are today. Yeah, so I hear what you're saying, but I suppose the one point that you didn't pick up on is the fact that so much of our happiness and our sort of the way we have evolved as, as human beings is wrapped up not necessarily in our absolute belongings or our absolute quality of lifestyle, but more in terms of our relative status within the general human pack. And more especially to do with sort of the human pact that we deal with closer to home. So mm. we like to compare ourselves to friends and family, to our neighbors, then of course to the rest of the people throughout our national communities, and then of course compared to the world at large. And I think that there is a conversation to be had that the more happier society is looking historically at what's gone on in the world in general are societies where people have had a sense and a feeling that they are able to progress there are a lot in life, not necessarily just in absolute terms, but in fact, more importantly, from a psychological perspective and from an actual sort of behavioral perspective in relative terms to the rest of society. So societies with more upward mobility or the ability to move from a lower class or lower income bracket into a higher sort of status on the sort of social ladder do tend to be happier, more energetic and more optimistic societies and societies, no matter their base standard of living, so this applies to some of your Nordic nations too, tend to be less hopeful about the future when they feel that their position in society is baked in. Does your, does your research go into that question at all? Because that does seem to be the root of a lot of social dissatisfaction and a lot of concern, real concern for real declines in potential living standards. If you look at something like in Argentina, for example, and then when you get to that sort of point of no return, when societies sort of seem to, to eat themselves for, for, for not to put too fine a point of it for reasons of sort of mimesis and, and envy and, and those sorts of things. So I think that's a real concern because inequality on a local level and on a global level has increased. And that seems to correlate very, very neatly with dissatisfaction and with a lack of hope or willingness to buy into sort of more sustainable objectives and policies that will obviously be useful for everyone in the longer run. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think I'll, uh, I want to say two things. The one is just about inequality um, more generally. Is, is, uh, so there's two trends that's happened over the last, uh, say, two or three decades. Let's make it three decades. Well, it's actually now four decades since the 1980s. Um, and that is that global inequality has actually declined. So that's, you know, the world of the 1960s and 70s was a world where you had this kind of bimodal distribution, which you had the rich countries and you had, you had the kind of international right? inequality it wasn't like yeah. a major big middle class and, and and what has happened really since is that china and india as as you know, and several countries in africa as well uh, um, has moved into this kind of middle class status and so global inequality just if you measure a gini coefficient for the world that's actually fallen but obviously at the country level within countries you see inequality increasing so you see within the us within several european countries uh, you see actually this increase where the middle class, the kind of former middle class has kind of been left behind. 
And actually, the, the interesting thing is, is that it's kind of the wealthier, but also the really poor is actually done um, uh, slightly better. So, so there you see kind of greater levels of inequality. And of, of course, those uh, things, um, uh, those high levels of inequality have been uh, put forward as the reasons for the rise of populism and, and, and you know, those kinds of trends. Um, so that's the that's the one thing I wanted to say about inequalities is I think the, the you know the age of globalization since the 1970s I think most people would say that it's created a more unequal world but that's simply not true it's created a more equal global world but it's created high levels of concentrated pockets of inequality yeah, yeah. exactly and this the, the second thing I want to say is about your uh, remark about this kind of relative uh, you know the aspirations basically we have comparing ourselves to to our neighbors and our friends. And, and I think that's a really important point in that that's something different to inequality, right? So I yeah. think that's, you know, if, if someone asks me what's the main issue in South Africa at the moment, I would say it's not inequality, it's actually social mobility or social immobility. The fact that, that the poorest in society struggle to move up. Um, and so I think that's really different where we are now than where we were say 15, um, 20 years ago, where clearly there was much greater levels of uh, mobility, so the poor could move up in society, um, and we see actually, you know, that's much more closely tied, for example, to uh, issues of poverty. Um, so when you see a poverty, poverty decline, that must mean that, um, so absolute poverty decline, that must mean that there's some form of upward mobility happening. Um, the trend with inequality is more, it's, it's more complex. It's not always clear that, you know, you could have high levels of inequality and reductions in poverty that could much that could happen quite easily. Um, yeah. So you know the things that have that, that affect inequality uh, is is complicated. Um, of course, the easiest way to reduce inequality in South Africa is just to kind of remove the top hundred richest you know households, and then then that would reduce our our Gini coefficient. But when that happened to Steinhoff, you know, or when Steinhoff uh, was uh, eviscerated, basically. Um, and, and exactly that happened that some of the richest households in the country lost all their wealth. I didn't see many people, you know, uh, celebrate in the street because the Gini coefficient that had collapsed. Um, so, so to me, you know, it's not that people care so much about inequalities that they care about social mobilities, that they, they care about whether they, if they're stuck in a, in a rural area where there's no services, where there are no job opportunities, uh, no you know, health care or education, these kind of things, they care about whether their kids will have a better life than they do. Uh, and you know, that's linked to poverty reduction and upward social mobility. So I think that's, that's you know, I mentioned this, kind of touch on this towards the end of the book, uh, but that would, that's what I would say is, is, is a fundamental difference to just focusing on, on inequality, which is of course, you know, a, a, a word that is kind of bandied about uh, quite a lot, but, but I think it's, it's often a more complicated issue than that. Yeah, well, inequality is a lot easier to measure and manage than mobility is because mobility is much more nuanced. It's got a lot more subjectivity that goes into it. But you're really hitting on that point there because if the conversation really is about honest optimism or honest pessimism or, or you know, like making sure that our, our attitude towards the future and towards our society is matched with the empirical reality, then we do have to sort of understand what it is that is making people feel pessimistic. And people do feel pessimistic when they feel like the future for them in, as individuals is not going to be better. I mean, we define better, better doesn't only mean better in absolute terms, it also means better in terms of their position in society. So if people feel stuck where they are, then obviously they're going to feel less optimistic about their future prospects. Let's bring you to another conversation I've been having with a few different people also on the show. The whole question of the sort of rising specter in the, the global discourse around economics and policy of degrowth. So I'm fascinated by this topic because as soon as you put degrowth onto the table, suddenly the whole premise on your book, and this is where a lot of criticism from thinkers similar to yourself that are very legitimately optimistic about where we are right now, like your Steven Pinkers and your Hans Brasslings and all the rest of it, do a lot of criticism is that a lot of those sort of projections of continuing those optimistic positive trends are premised on having some sort of growth. And at the same time, we're having huge pressure from the richest, most powerful nations in the world to actually turn off growth altogether and to focus on sustainability instead of growth. 
So of course, my own personal views are that, that we don't have to choose one or the other, but I think we have to address the fact that some of the biggest, most powerful voices in the global room are not suggesting we can have both. They're actually quite adamantly saying, in fact, that we need to make do with sharing our toys rather than making new ones. I think from an African perspective, that should be, and from an emerging market perspective in general, that should raise a few eyebrows. And if it doesn't, we should at least have, be having conversations about what this means. Because in order to continue a lot of those, those positive trends, be they relative or absolute, so whether you're talking about inequality, mobility, or about just general progress in terms of things like living standards and life expectancies and all of those good things, it does require some sort of growth and it requires a lot of that growth from an economic perspective to come from international partners who might have very different objectives on the table. Of course, if you are an aged sort of Nordic or middle European nation, degrowth is not scary. In fact, it's very pragmatic. So you've got a shrinking population, of course, you're going to be degrowing, like it or not. So you might as well, you might as well make it policy. So because then of course you can meet your own targets. But how does the degrowth conversation fits into your narrative? And I do want to sort of drill down on that because I know it's not an easy thing to answer, but I think there is a conversation to be had there about a lot of the, the sort of resistance you're going to have to your narrative, which I do tend to agree with on a personal level. How yeah. do you counter those arguments and how do you reconcile for yourself that these trends can continue in a positive manner in a world that is increasingly focused on sustainability and shrinking mobility and shrinking that ability to sort of progress on absolute or relative terms rather than focused on growth? Yeah, I think, I think that's an excellent question. I, um, I've been thinking about this actually quite a lot over the last month or so, um, simply because there's been this conversation on, on Twitter, on social media, uh, that uh, between you know some of the prominent people uh, in in economic history and economics more generally that I follow, uh, where they comment on the economic anthropologist Jason Eco uh, and his book, uh, I think it's called uh, something about degrowth, uh, you know less is more or something like that. Um, so he's he's one of the big proponents in the field that's that's you know suggesting that that's a uh, the only solution I think to to the environmental problem. So, you know, you mentioned this at the end, this, this starts ultimately with the idea that uh, economic growth has created, I mean, there's the acknowledgement at least that economic growth has created immense prosperity, but that this has come at the cost of, you know, environmental um, degradation, biodiversity loss and climate change. And, and so- And that some people that, have won more than others, just to put that yeah, point so in. I know and, that's and Jason's to, does speak to that, that quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, All these so ideas right. tied together. <laughs> So the high levels of inequality indeed is, is one, uh, again, another. So, so Jason's argument basically in his book, uh, which unfortunately um, I, I had to read uh, because I wanted to, to know what this uh, view was, um, is, so it's a bit more nuanced. And so you get the kind of romanticized version of this idea so that we all should go back to, um, uh, you know, living in, in huts, like green communism, yeah, <laughs> landscape, subsistence farmers, and and that so that that's not what he proposes, right? So um, and and you do hear that from time to time, um, but of course, I think those are kind of more, you know, they they said these you know unrealistic ideas about about the world and and the kind of lifestyle that we we tend to have, right? That again paints this idea. So that's again why I think economic history is so important because. If we understand that life in the distant past was terrible, um, that you know, if you had ten children, it was you were lucky if two or three of them survived into adulthood, um, and that, so that's partly the reason that you had ten children is that to ensure that at least one or two survive. Um, you know, we live in a very different world in most countries now. Even some of the poorest countries in the world have much lower levels of fertility now um, than than even what they had uh, a couple of decades ago. So so. So we, but but let's assume that that's not the argument. Let's assume that it is the the Hickel argument of. And so, what is his argument? It's basically that we should all live at the GDP level of Costa Rica, um, and so the U.S. and some of the richest countries in the world, the Scandinavian countries and, and European countries, should shrink their GDP per capita to a much lower level, and uh, poor the poor world should obviously continue to grow up to a certain level, and then we'll all, you know, that will solve. In his view, um, at least the two major problems of our time—that is, inequality 
and, uh, and environmental uh, degradation. Now, there are multiple issues with, uh, with that kind of argument. Um, the one, uh, the most obvious is just how would any politician win a, an election in the US uh, which would, with, the, with the mandate to say, uh, we will collapse our incomes you know, by a factor of two or whatever to get to a, a much lower level. That's, that's simply you know, implausible that anything like that would happen. Um, and so that's just a kind of a, you know, a very obvious uh, pragmatic reason. But I, I think the other one that I want to stress, and that's why I would even call this a, um, I would call this an incredibly Eurocentric view, is, is because uh, we know that for poor countries to grow, they need to trade and they need to trade with the rich world. And so if the rich world was starting to collapse their GDP per capita and consume much less, because that's exactly what you know, GDP means, it's, it's a way to measure incomes or to kind of aggregate incomes, um, that means that they're gonna buy much less from the poor world, from the developing world. And so that, that's not gonna lead to growth. In fact, that's gonna lead to massive degrowth also in the developing world, and that's gonna raise Unemployment is going to, you know, raise uh, poverty uh, or, you know, exacerbate poverty uh, to a much greater extent. So, so it's just kind of uh, economically illiterate to propose something like that. So that's not to say we should continue on the way we are, right? Um, but I think it, the, the ultimate issue with the degrowth literature is that it misunderstands what economic growth is uh, and the ways that one can achieve that. And so there are ways to grow, to become more productive. So that's exactly, again, you know, GDP is the total value of what we produce within a year, within a, in a specific uh, uh, country, is uh, that we can produce not only more, but we can produce more smartly. And I think that's really what one should argue for, is that, you know, instead of building a, you know, several dozen billion dollar, um, coal power plant in South Africa, we should uh, invest in solar power because we have, um, you know, the sun is the largest resource that basically we have available in South Africa. And so we should use that. Um, so it's not, you know, just building more things, it's building smarter um, uh, in ways that actually protects the environment. So if we were not to build Medupe or Xile, but instead we're building uh, solar panels, we would still be creating economic growth but it would be a far, you know, uh, kinder type of growth um, that would benefit the environment. Um, and, and so that's really the way we need to think about it. So how do you kind of create that growth? That's really the question I think one should ask. And there are various ways. I mean, there's things that you should, simply should not do, like, you know, have ESCOM as a monopoly, for example, that prevents competition in the market for electricity. But there are other things that you can do, and, and many other kind of rich countries are actually doing this. And so that's like, uh, you know, subsidizing electric cars and all of these kinds of methods to, to um, encourage uh, or incentivize innovation in these types of technologies that not only leads to growth, but protects the environment as well. Um, so, so that's how I would, uh, at the moment, we, you know, respond to the degrowth uh, literature and, and claims. It's, it's, I think it's unfathomable that we can expect a you know, poor or underdeveloped or develop, developing whatever you want to call it, country or society or group of people within a society to tell them, listen, you know, you can only grow so much or you should actually abandon the idea of growth uh, or abandon the idea of getting, you know, building a better life for yourself. That's basically what it's saying. And so you're right to refer to, you know, these European countries uh, who um, are in fact, uh, you know, the population size is falling. And so, degrowth at a slower rate than what the population is falling is actually still per capita increased. Um, uh, but I think what many of these scholars are actually referring to is, is actually per capita declines in, in the income. And I just don't see that benefiting Europe, the US, or especially the developing world. In fact, if you look at what has happened to carbon emissions, if you look at biodiversity loss over the longer run, over the last century, we actually see that in Europe, that trend um, has reversed by the 1970s in the US, it's a bit later by the early 2000s. So the rich world is actually not responsible for climate change and environmental degradation anymore. It is actually the developing world. So again, that 
the argument falls flat if you were to simply say, well, the developing world can still grow and the rich world will have to decline because it's actually, you know, most of the carbon emissions now are the growth in carbon emissions comes from the developing world. Um, so again, you know, there's just, I guess there's so many arguments against it that, that I probably should stop there. Yeah, we can ask it in a slightly different way because these ideas are not going to go anywhere. They are permeating all sides of society and not just from the public sector. They actually permeate into the private sector too, which is really quite extraordinary because you're starting to see essentially set up for profit businesses now incentivizing their executives in order to meet sustainability rather than growth targets, which is quite a major shift. It does indicate these ideas are quite baked into our society and it does lead me to question what happens next in terms of the trends that you're speaking about. And perhaps I know that Jason is a bit on the extreme end of the sort of degrowth curve, but there's a much bigger sort of mass, critical mass gathering around sort of Kate Roth's ideas around donor economics, which I speak quite a lot about because people get the concept, which is really the same thing, but it's sold in a much more palatable, much more sugar-coated literary sort of format. And what it really is, and you've spoken about how degrowth is, does actually involve some people having less, which is not exciting from an optimism point of view. Of course, you're not going to be excited about a future where you're literally going to have a lower living standard or at least exactly the same living standard as your parents had. But there's sort of subtext that goes underneath the donut economics model. And we can look at Amsterdam, which has actually adopted it. I know a lot of other European countries are looking at that and, and cities too. What it really requires is a much more planned and managed both demand and supply side of your economy. So it's in the same sort of line my, where I'm sort of getting at in terms of my next question to you, but this is more to do with the sort of policies that are underpinning this. What do you think will happen to the sort of positive trends that you've outlined in your book with regards to life expectancies and, and sort of, you know, reductions in absolute poverty and all the rest of it? If countries in the developing as well as the developed world start to adopt the very much more planned economy models, I mean, it is a, it is a variant of a very socialist type policies, but what's quite extraordinary to me, looking into the details to what's actually prescribed with the donut economics model, and for people not familiar with it, it really says that there's sort of two rings, the one being a sort of social security safety net based on the UN sustainability goals that no human being should fall behind. So it's like a base level of social care and welfare that we should give to every human being. The other ring being, of course, our natural sort of resource balance that we shouldn't overshoot. In order to actually maintain an economy within that donut logic, you have to control not only what people produce, so not just carbon credits for companies, for example, but you also have to control what people are permitted to buy. So starting to put like carbon credits on individuals or giving people sort of unfrequent flyer miles, almost like saying that these ideas that are actually being floated by policymakers right now, that you shouldn't be able to fly more than a certain amount of, or use up a certain amount of carbon as a person, as an individual. And that requires quite a high degree of control and planning. And I had another guest on the show a while back, Perth Toll, who looks at really how freedom is correlated with economic growth. And the, the sort of the cost of the donut economics model, while it does preference justice and, and fairness, it does require societies giving up a lot of freedom. That is the trade-off there. And if freedom is correlated with economic growth, if the world starts to adopt these models, and if international institutions like your UNs and your big financing companies and the, your global trade systems start to preference their thinking around sort of around upper and lower bands that you have to operate in, what does that mean for the growth prospects of countries and, and economies in the world that really does require growth if it wants to get even absolute poverty sorted out? Yeah, I think these are, uh, again, it's a great question. These are kind of difficult issues, right? So I, I, would, I would say that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, in the book, I mentioned this as well. I'm not uh, in favor of no government, right? So I, I you know, not an anarchist or all these kind of things. I think the yeah, government- Yeah, I also like law and order, hey? Yeah, yeah, but I think it's an important point to make though, that, mm. that the government has an incredibly important role to play. Um, but the question is about what was, what is its role in society? And so I think there, um, it is important that um, in say the South African context, that the government does acknowledge that there is, of course, a history of discrimination and alienation and exclusion, and that some of the policies that we implement try and address that. And so 
there I, you know, the question is about what are those policies? And at the moment, I, I, I sense that there are you know, too many regulations and things that, that have perhaps good intentions, but they ultimately fail to actually help those that, that supposed to be, that, that should be helped. And so in that sense, I think something like a, a basic income grant, which um, is a way to actually, I think, empower people with the choice to um, decide for themselves what they want to do with this, you know, monthly, and it's, it's a meager amount, but it's something that they can at least help to uh, uh, help them to, to, uh, you know, live above, just above subsistence. I think that's, that's a, a useful and sensible thing to investigate. That has other consequences. I acknowledge that, that there's perhaps labor market consequences. There are consequences about this, obviously the question about funding it, but I think there's also a trade-off then. So once you implement something like that, then, Certainly, some of the other regulations that are put in place that clearly is not working should be removed. So it's 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 not necessarily if you were just measuring it as terms of government spending. It's not saying we should spend less. It's just spending in a different way that allows people to have a you know choice about how they um, uh, which government services they use and perhaps whether they can use the the funds that they receive uh, to to um, actually say private sector services. So in that sense. Think about something like education. Um, you know, we are spending about twenty thousand rand per student on education. Uh, Kuro's latest model is uh, also around twenty thousand rand per per student. So, if you were to offer, you know, parents in in townships or in rural areas the option of choosing a government school or going to a Kuro school, and you give them a voucher, I think that's that's it's still you know it's still state sponsored. Uh, but it's it's now that uh, those parents have the option of of choosing a government run or or a private run school, and they can you know they can um, make that decision uh, informed by the quality of the teachers and of course you know what the what the marks of the students uh, previous previous students were and and all of those kind of things and and, and you can even expand that right it need not be Kiro, you know that gives opportunities for private entrepreneurs in those townships to say, well, we want a Zulu-run school, right? We want a school that just teaches uh, in Zulu. And, and so we are gonna, we're going to do this and, and we can fund ourselves through these vouchers. Or a cricket academy, you know, Cricket South Africa or whatever can, can, can establish cricket-run schools or, or Catholic school, right? So, so that just gives, again, choice to, to parents, which, which is something that I think is really important um, uh, uh, where, and, and I think my main kind of difference to, to some of the kind of views on economic freedom in South Africa at the moment, where it is the state that makes those decisions for individuals. That I would say the state can provide the, the support, but ultimately we want people on the ground to make the decisions for themselves that are that are most beneficial to them. They know they've got better information than any government employee has about their living standards, about their uh, access to different kinds of services. And so they should be able to make those decisions, not the, not, not the government for them. So in that sense, I, you know, the government has an incredibly important role to play. Um, and I see that as, as, a, as a redistributive role, um, uh, and, and, but not in a sense through, through regulation or, or more legislation. It is indeed through funding uh, a very kind of basic uh, form of, of uh, BIG perhaps, uh, or, or through these kind of voucher programs of education. So basically using existing programs, but in a way that allows uh, uh, households, South African households to make the decision for themselves. Yeah, that's a great answer on the sort of the social security floor side of the question. But I suppose my question is more to do with what happens when we start trying to manage more in terms of the, the sustainability ring, which I think comes from international pressure rather than just local mm. pressure. And it puts mm. economies, weaker economies, particularly sort of isolated economies like South Africa, because we haven't played very nicely with our African neighbors. We haven't formed a strong negotiating block. How do we then create a sort of a policy or, or a way of negotiating with international trading partners who we kind of have to conform to in a world where so the, the, the partners are putting more pressure on for sustainability goals and metrics than for our own local sort of growth requirements. And as you say, we've got larger requirements in terms of the social security sort of basic mm -hmm. sustainable development sort of flaws that we have to build here. 
But that does mean that we at the same time do require a bit more scope for perhaps growth. Mm. And if we are having to comply with a lot of first world targets, which might be completely wonderful if they are affordable, but there's there's things that, that rich people and rich nations can afford that poor nations and poor people mm. simply cannot. And I suppose that's the core trade-off that, that comes. And, it, and, and it's an essential question to answer if we want to follow those those mm. trends that you talk about in your book mm. through to a more progressive rather than regressive future. Mm. And of course, I don't think it's something that you or I can answer, but I think it's worth sort of putting out there to, to mm. ask the questions there. What is, where should our priorities be? And what are the trade-offs in terms mm. of urgency and importance when we're talking mm. about sort of massive issues that have global collateral mm. damage and mm. global interests that affect your, your sort of local mm. markets? And yeah. I, I suppose I'm, I'm interested because South Africa has tended, and being a South African, I would start there, to be a sort of an early adopter in rules and regulations. So we were sort of overachievers there. We might not be overachievers in actually implementing them, but we tend to adopt legislation very, very quickly. Do you have any advice as to what policymakers should be looking at in that regard? Or perhaps, you know, are we, are we doing too much or too little? How do your views correlate with what I've said or not? Yeah, I, I mean, I do not know much about the topic, so, so I should, I'll keep my answer short. And that, and that just, um, I think it's important to, to uh, organize as a, as a block, say, you know, whether that be Africa. Um, so, um, you know, every African country compared to the US is tiny, right? So you, you can't really uh, have these bilateral agreements. Um, you're always going to lose out, and so multilateralism is really, really important. And and you know, there's a whole history in trade literature on on the importance of of this. Jackie Squadi is one of the famous economists who wrote about this. Um, and and we see to some extent that Asia has managed to kind of form these kind of blocks, and they've managed to to not only you know integrate regionally, but also um, negotiate as a block. And I think Africa can do something similar. But of course, we've got other types of uh, uh, groupings, the, the you know the BRICS and 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 the various kinds, and so I I don't think you know a lot of the trade international trade now is actually uh, south south or developing country to developing country. So so there are new opportunities uh, where we don't actually need to listen to or to agree to the to the uh, the kind of legislation or, or regulations put in place by by the by the developed north. But but I do think uh, ultimately if we were to think of a, a more a fairer global trade system, both be that like uh, trading goods or trading services or other kinds of you know, migration one could think of or other kinds of movements or ideas and people and so forth. I think ultimately multilateralism, multilateralism is the, the key to that, that kind of um, uh, uh, success. Um, if, if we were to continue just these kind of bilateral Agreements. I, I fear that that ultimately the only consequence will be that developing countries uh, will lose out, as as they have in the past. Right before we had WTO, we had these, you know, voluntary arrangements of of negotiating rounds and, and trade negotiations that uh, that benefited the, the wealthier countries simply because they they had more political clout. Um, and it was really only with the establishment of these various trade rounds that that developing countries. Uh, had, a say, had a say at the table. Um, and unfortunately, that is now, you know, with the WTO, uh, the Doha round, I think, collapsing, we, you know, we haven't, we haven't had that kind of uh, multilateral discussion, uh, which I think is, is really needed. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, in terms of looking at looking at globally again, as to what's happening with the sort of future trajectory of human progress goals, as you mentioned right at the beginning, any sort of numerical or monetary based sort of target or trend can quite easily be fudged. I mean, there's GDP and there's GDP, right? And it depends on who's collating the numbers and all the rest of it. And things like, of course, the CPI is a bit of a joke at the moment. If you look at no inflation, but inflation everywhere, you actually look as a consumer. But I think the sort of, the sort of metrics that are quite undeniable are metrics like things like life expectancy. And that was something that I wanted to get your view on. And that, of course, South Africa and Africa and the emerging markets are still very much on the uptrend there, catching up with the rest of the developed world. 
But there is, once again, another sort of pin and a warning is to say that perhaps these sort of upward curves aren't going to last forever. If we start looking at what, what's happening with things like life expectancy in places like the United States, particularly among sort of certain strata of their population, that those curves have started turning down. So instead of going up, they're going down, even as a few lucky people, once again, there's that huge divergence between the, the, the few and the majority are sort of heading into super longevity territory of over 100 years or plus. For the majority of large swaths of America, those sort of living expectancies have started turning down, indicating that the sort of upward graphs then all the nice ones that sort of point to the top right of the screen are not guaranteed that things can go wrong. So, of course, living standards is just one thing, but if I can get your comments on that and how to avoid it, and what are some of the mistakes you've seen that we can maybe be a bit proactive about so that we can have more nice up into the right charts and graphs mm -hmm. and, not, and not sad ones that sort of reach a peak and, and sort of bend over? Yeah, yeah, you're certainly right that, that's, uh, that those trends in some uh, respects are, are coming to... Kind of flattening out or actually in decline. I mean, the, the US example, I think it's, uh, it's very specifically the opioid crisis uh, that we see there. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's got a, a really interesting history. And, and, and I think there are very specific uh, ideas about what to do, what to do there. But you we're of course right that, you know, ultimately we run into kind of biological constraints, right? So that, that you know, humans can only get to X amount and, and, and then you know, our bodies decay and and, and we, we die. Um, I think South Africa and, and in many respects, many African countries as well, uh, still has a long way to go, right? So our main, our main um, uh, uh, issue has been HIV AIDS and, and there, right, something like a, a vaccine, which has been mentioned in the last couple of months against HIV AIDS. Uh, and another one is of course, malaria, uh, which, is, which is really applicable to many other African countries. I mean, those two types of vaccines, if that if they were to be successful, would dramatically increase life expectancy on the continent. So, uh, you know, where it is in the 60s, perhaps now or in late 50s, I think I think it's I think it's now in the 60s somewhere. Um, I, we could easily see that going into the 70s, which would you know would have profound implications for for a variety of different things, right? So, you know, people know that they're going to live long, or they expect that they will live long, then that will affect their uh, decisions to invest in education and all of these kind of, kinds of other things, and obviously savings for retirement, but that will also affect uh, pension schemes in Africa. So, so just kind of you know the thought of different uh, you know consequences of such a of such a of, of such a change. Um, but you're right that there are places. It's not inevitable that that will happen. I mean, there's there's a chapter in the book uh, which is about Argentina, um, and and you know this is the country that's the richest in the world in in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, massive migration also from from Europe. Uh, you know, everyone wants wants to live in Buenos Aires. It's this beautiful uh, architecture and opera house and all of these kind of things. And then basically, it looks exactly the same at the end of the 20th century. Right. So there's no real construction. And, and the question is like, why why has Argentina fallen from one of the richest countries in the world to a middle income country at best? And um, and there, kind of, there's really fascinating discussions about kind of different types of economic policies that they implemented in the in the in the 1940s. But then you have to ask, so why was it in Argentina and to some extent Uruguay that those policies were implemented? What were the causes of those policies? And then it's about the terms of trade and the fact that they were exporting agricultural goods and all of those kind of things. Um, but the point really of the chapter is to say that it's not inevitable that our living standards will increase. That there are certain things that could happen quite easily to a country like Argentina, educated country that, you know, allows for this, uh, for this turnaround. And um, so it's not that I want to predict that the future will inevitably be better. Um, I don't, I, I cannot do that. Um, if I could predict, um, then I would be rich. Um, but, um, uh, but what I do think I want to stress is that the future can be better. So there's a difference. Uh, in, in the early 90s, South Africa had, there was a lot of uh, pessimism about the future of the country and, you know, a terrible education system that excluded, you know, most of South Africans. Um, there was high levels of debt. Uh, there was violence and crime. Um, and, uh, and you, know, you know, many would argue that we were on the brink of a, of a civil war. 
And yet within 15 years after that, we had GDP growth of uh, 5%. We had a budget surplus. We had reduced our debt levels to the low uh, 30%, even high 20%, I think. So uh, a remarkable turnaround, right? And so we have many of those similar issues again today. And, and I think we can, um, we can believe that the future or the future can be better. It, it need not be. It, it, there's no some, you know there's no deterministic thing that would allow me to say that it will be better but certainly um, we should not and then this is the kind of sentiment that I get from my students and from conversations is that it seems like we are almost uh, uh, everyone seems like the future is guaranteed to be negative and I, and I just don't I don't I don't think that needs to be the case. I, I too tend to be at least a long-term optimist. I mean, the short term, there's always a few chickens that need to come home and roost almost inevitably. And I'd rather get them here earlier than later so we can have our get, have our pessimism over and done with as quickly as possible. But I think that's quite a good point to leave this conversation on a more positive note in that it can, things can be and they really should be a lot better than they are right now. And that it's really up to us to, to not drop the ball because we've been given such a fantastic starting block at this point in time. We just absolutely have to remain optimistic and to focus on ways to have sustainable growth rather than trying to focus on ways to sort of make ourselves scared and frightened about what could go wrong. If we focus on what could go right, it's a lot more motivating, certainly a lot more exciting to have conversations about and increasingly rare right now. It's not, not very popular to be an optimist. As I'm sure you know, you get a lot of, get a lot of hate and pushback in the social media space for daring to, daring to dream, daring to be positive about the future. So we do need to change that around. But where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Where can they get hold of your book? If you don't want to be found, of course, you can just say that you prefer to remain a man of mystery. But no, they you. can. Uh, so I, I have a blog uh, at johanfuri.com. Uh, and if they want to know more about the book, um, this is what it looks like. Uh, they can go to ourlongwalk.org, uh, which is uh, where they can find reviews and, and kind of media statements and you know, blog posts and, and, and podcasts like this one, um, and, um, and also purchase the book. Um, and, and I think ultimately it's, it's kind of interesting you know, for an economist, uh, academic economist, uh, to now actually enter the, the real world of, of, of the market. Uh, it is a fascinating experience to kind of uh, be you know, selling, selling the product um, uh, but ultimately, I realized that it's word of mouth that matters. And so, uh, you know, if they like the book, then, then certainly tell, tell friends and family about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Bonnie.